Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the love that we just sang about that has come to this world like a flood. I thank you that you have allowed many of us sitting here today to taste the sweetness and the goodness of your love. That went to the grave for us. We hail you this morning, O mighty Christ. O death-conquering King. We hail you as the greatest, the greatest human who has ever lived. The God-man come to save us. I pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts this morning with love for the Lord Jesus as we look at his word. May we focus on your word this morning as if we are listening to the voice of God speaking from the scriptures. May all of us hear and follow Jesus more closely. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we're going to be continuing our journey in Colossians. Colossians. Just a brief recap. Colossians is a letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote from jail. Why is he in jail? For preaching Jesus. That's why Paul kept getting sent to jail. Beaten. And eventually, murdered for his faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. We are going to be in Colossians. Colossians, last week we saw, was written to the church in Colossae by the Apostle Paul, who apostle means sent one, sent by God's will. We talked about how Paul's conversion, his turning point to follow Jesus, is so radical that it's obviously God's will. You take a rabbinic scholar at the top of his game, one of the brightest lights in Judaism, murdering Christians, thinking he's doing service to God. And he's riding to lock up more Christians, and he's knocked off his horse by a bright light, and he has an encounter with the risen Christ who speaks to him from heaven's throne. And when Paul realized that the, Jesus was the king, his entire life turned around. And he started following Jesus. He started preaching the gospel that he once tried to destroy. That's the man who's writing these words that we're going to be looking at. Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, by his own intellect, by his own decision? No, by the will of God. Paul never forgot that. God saved me. And then he's writing to the church of Colossae, to the saints, and he gives them grace and peace from God the Father. And so that's how we ended last week. God is a Father who gives grace and peace. And everything we're going to read in this letter is 
the grace of God to us, the love of God communicated. And how do we know this letter is all about grace? Well, it ends with the words, grace be with you. Starts grace to you, ends grace with you. I think grace is pretty important, right? We're going to see that this morning in these verses. So, Colossians 1, verses 3 to 8. This passage is one of those passages with a really simple main point, and yet it's packed with a powerful truth. So, we're going to read these verses together. Colossians 1, verses 3 to 8. Paul writes this, We always thank God... Oh, and by the way, I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Um, so, this is slightly different than the NIV, which a lot of you probably have. Um, we'll talk about a couple of those little differences in that. We always thank God, Paul says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since, or because, we, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and has made known to us your love in by the Spirit. So this is a quite, um, this passage is a bit of a wordy mouthful, if you read it. It's just one sentence, it keeps going on. But Paul is really saying one thing. <laughs> he's, he's saying, I thank the Father that the gospel is bearing the fruit of faith and love in your lives. So I thank God this is the main thing. I thank God that the good news you heard is bearing fruit in your life. What's the fruit? Faith and love. You're trusting Jesus and you're loving people. And I thank God for that. But Paul weaves several other ideas all around that main idea he's trying to communicate to support it. So I'm just going to work through, you can look at verse 3 again, and I'm just going to fly through these verses again and kind of summarize the flow of thought to give you a kind of a grasp of what's going on. So look at verse 3. He says, We thank the Father when we pray for you. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 4, We thank the Father because we've heard of your faith in Jesus. And oh, we've also heard about the love you have for Christians, for all the saints. And we're thankful for that. Why do you love other Christians? Well, you love other Christians because of your heavenly hope. Verse 5. How'd you hear about this hope? Oh, in the gospel. What gospel? Well, verse 6, the one that came to you. Just as it's bearing fruit all over the world, this gospel is going, going global. So the gospel went viral, right? It, and it's bearing fruit everywhere. People are following its, mission, its message just as it bears fruit among you in your lives since the very day you heard it and understood the true grace of God. Oh, how did you hear about it? You remember, Epaphras told you about it. Oh, how did we know that Epaphras told us about it? Well, Epaphras told us about your love in the Spirit. So see how it's just kind of, it, it seems like stream of consciousness, right? And yet, it's very connected. It begins with the love that the gospel is working in them, and it ends with Epaphras telling them about 
that love. And in the middle is the, the truth that the gospel is bearing fruit. So this morning, I'm going to work us through the verses in three main steps. But most of our time will be focused on the last step, the last main point that Paul makes. So step one is in verse three. Paul says, we always thank the Father. We're just always thanking the Father. Step two, supports it. Why? Oh, because you have faith in Jesus. And then step three, supports it with another reason. We also thank the Father for your love for Jesus' people. And everything else from verses 5 to 8 unpacks the ground or gives support for the love that the Colossians have. The support for their love. Ultimately, we're going to see in verse 5 that the reason, the, the ground, the support, why do you love these people? These, why are you a loving people? It's because you have hope. Hope comes from the gospel. Gospel hope, we're going to see, is the fuel in love's gas tank. Christian love runs on hope. And ultimately, that gospel hope that's working in the believers and is what Paul's giving thanks for. So, point one, we always thank the Father, Paul says. We always thank the Father, verse three, of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Paul has never met these guys. We talked about that last week. He's never met the Colossians. Everything he knows about the Colossians comes from Epaphras, and yet he prays for them. He always gives thanks to God the Father for them. Give thanks to the Father always when I pray for you. I want to ask you, do you give thanks for people when you pray for them? Or when, people, when you pray for people, do you just pray for the needs that they might have? It's good to pray for others' needs. But do you thank God for people? Do you express gratitude to the Father that He's at work in the lives of those around you and those you love? Paul is constantly expressing thankfulness to God for the people in his life, both in this passage and in all his letters, which I think means Paul was always looking eagerly to see evidence in this world and in the lives of those around him. He's always looking. He's in tune with, where can I see grace at work? Where can I see the good news about Jesus changing lives and celebrate that? Where can I see God winning? To be able to thank God for the work he's doing in people, we have to have eyes to see the truth of Jesus at work in people's lives. We've got to be looking for God at work. For examples of love that are in others that can be celebrated. And to do that, you've got to know people. And Paul never met these people, but he listened to Epaphras talk about them. It's a tremendous encouragement to hear that God is at work in someone's life. And it can be a tremendous encouragement to others to do what Paul's doing here. To look at someone and say, I thank God that I see God at work in your life. You may be in a low spot, you might not feel it, right now, but I've seen God working in your life in the past, 
And I see that he's at work in your life, and I have confidence that he will continue to work in your life in the future. It's a really encouraging thing to tell someone. I've been told that before, and it's very encouraging. I see God at work. And this leads to the first of Paul's reasons for giving thanks for the Colossians. He says, how, how does he see God at work? Well, he sees their faith in Jesus. That's the second point. We thank the Father for your faith in Jesus. Now, some of your translations, like the NIV, for example, might bring it out a little bit different. Um, and that's okay. Uh, verse 4 literally starts with the word because, or for. Um, some might say since. Since is another way of saying because. I went, to the store, I went to the store since we needed milk. Because we needed milk, right? Supports your reason for something. Um, the reason for Paul's thanksgiving to the Father is that the Christians have faith in Jesus. They trust Jesus. They trust the same king Paul has come to know and love and trust. And for the true Christian, that's, I've already mentioned this, but that's one of the most exciting things, to, to see faith at work in someone else. Someone else trusting Jesus. Jesus winning in someone else's life. And Paul thanks God for that. And now, third and final thing that's driving his thanksgiving. Um, he says, we thank the Father for your love for all the saints. You love Jesus' people. For all the family of Jesus, they have love. I'm a dad, right? I have four kids, and one thing that really warms my heart is to see my kids showing genuine love for each other. Those of you who have been had the joy of being a parent, maybe you can relate to that. Um, breaks your heart to see your kids fighting. It warms your heart to see them holding hands or asking for forgiveness genuinely. Wow, thank you, Lord, that you are at work in their hearts as a pastor it's encouraging to see God at work in the lives of many of you to see evidences of his love and here Paul is thankful for God at work I want to give an illustration for this why, why should we be so encouraged that God is working in someone else what why, why should that encourage us? Well, you know, love at work in someone else. Here's an illustration. Maybe this will help you. Imagine our country goes to war. Okay? And it's a war that affects all of us as individuals. It's not just like the wars we fought, like in Afghanistan or something. It's actually a war that really affects everybody. And there's a huge war effort. And all the people that are usually scrapping for extra cash are now going scrapping for the war effort. Okay? And they're, they're trying to show their love for the country by donating metal. Or by trying to conserve the energy resources of the nation. So imagine you are just caught up in this effort to support your nation. Because you love your nation. You want to protect your neighbors. And imagine... How would you feel if you were in a neighborhood where nobody else was joining in with the effort? Like, you're, you're, you're part of the effort, and everybody else is literally doing nothing. It's like they don't even care. 
you, you would feel like they didn't really love the country, right? And they didn't really care about winning the war. Um, but if instead they all were showing signs of effort, you would celebrate, you would be thankful for their efforts to love their nation well. It's like this, I think, in the Christian realm also. We are all citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. And our kingdom is at war. We war not against flesh and blood, as Paul says, but against the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of darkness, of death, of selfishness, of pride, and of sin, against the kingdom of the Satan that tears communities apart. We're at war against that. And so as men and women who are at war, if you are a Christian, if you're a true Christian, you are at war with Satan's kingdom. You realize that? We're at war. And when you see those around you who are joining the war effort, you celebrate it. You're not alone in the war. You celebrate evidences of life triumphing over death of light beating darkness. You like a movie where the good guys win? Does that make you excited? Or do you just like when the bad guys win all the time? Something's wrong if you like when dark movies where they end sad, right? We're wired to want to root for life and light and goodness and truth and justice. And when we see love winning around us, Light conquering darkness, truth conquering lies, brokenness being healed, we celebrate. The kingdom of God is on the move. Team Jesus is winning. That stirs our hearts. We thank God that we see his love at work in the family of Jesus. Because where the love of God is at work in people's lives, we know the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of God is advancing on earth. And where kingdom advance is happening, Satan is losing. The curse of Genesis 3 on humanity is being reversed. And the wonderful hope of new creation is breaking into time and space. Being tasted, even now, as one day we will taste it fully at the resurrection. And so... When we see God's kingdom win, it leads to celebration and hope. And then in verses 5 to 8, we see Paul support or give a reason for why the Christians in Colossae are showing this love that he is so excited about. Why do these Colossians love God and neighbor? Why? Literally, verse 5 says, they love because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. Heavenly hope is the fuel for Christian love. Some translations, um, like the NIV, read hope as the fuel for both love and faith. So, you have faith in Jesus, and you love all God's people because of the hope. Um, other translations say, actually, hope is supporting just the love. So you, there's two different things. You have faith in Jesus, and you have love for all the saints, and the love you have is because of the hope. That's, I think that's what's going on. The, the hope supports the love. 
But of course, faith, hope, and love are all very tightly connected in the Bible. Paul talks about faith, hope, and love constantly. Here's how these realities of trusting or faith and hope and love work together. Trust in Jesus is the certainty of what we hope for from Jesus. We, we have certainty, we trust that our hope in Jesus is true. I trust in his forgiveness. I trust it's true. It is my hope. I put my hope there. I trust in his promises. I trust that my future hope in heaven is real. I have faith that it is. And then because I trust in my hope, therefore, trust that strengthens hope overflows in love. Trust strengthens our hope and hope, confidence in what God has done and what God will do in the future, that confidence, that hope, that eager expectation that God will act graciously to me, past, present, future, that confident hope overflows and fuels love for other people. So how does heavenly hope fuel Christian love? Okay, Here's an image for you. If you're tr struggling to just grasp this, your car drives on gas, right? Christian love runs on the gas of hope. And our hope is purified, strengthened by faith. Faith in Jesus. And the more you trust Jesus, the stronger your hope in Jesus will be. And the stronger your hope in Jesus and all the promises of Jesus, the more you will love. Is that starting to hopefully make sense? How faith, hope, and love work together? Let's get practical. What gets in the way of loving people? And how might hope help you love other people? The first thing that comes to mind when I think of what gets in the way, the way of me loving people is fear. Love requires sacrifice, self-giving, to others, that they might have joy and goodness in their life. True love for others requires risk sometimes. Sometimes it hurts us to love other people. We have to be vulnerable. Love requires sacrifice. Sometimes great sacrifice. For example, sometimes love requires giving money or time to other people when we don't feel like or we might not be sure if we have enough time to sacrifice to give somebody some of my money or a chunk of my time to meet their needs and the fear can come that I won't have enough to meet my needs in the future or the needs of my family if I spend time helping them with this to meet their need, will I have enough time to do what I feel like I need to do? Future hope helps with this. In the words of the Apostle Peter, who writes about hope a lot in his first epistle, um, I have a hope stored up for me in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, which means I can let go of stuff now to meet the needs of others because I know that ultimately when I am raised from the grave one day my hands will be full with stuff that cannot be taken away. 
a new creation inheritance. The hope of life forever in the fullness of God's presence one day, it leads to radical love for other people. Even love that risks death to serve others. The hope of heaven looses purse strings on earth. Loosens our wallets to give. Our time resources to give. We realize the greater our hope in heaven and with Jesus becomes, the more we realize I can't take anything with me when I die. Nothing comes with me to the grave. And the more you give in love now, Jesus promises the more you will be raised with in the resurrection. The stronger your hope of heaven grows, the more radical your love for others will be in this life. Hear the words of our Savior Jesus. Luke 12, 29-34. Jesus says, Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Therefore, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These are the words of Jesus. Store up treasure in heaven. Putting our hope there opens our hands down here for love. Have you ever heard the phrase that somebody is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? A person so heavenly minded they're just no earthly good. Maybe you haven't heard that phrase. It basically means somebody just always thinking and talking about God and the Bible and spiritual things. And they, whenever you ask, tell them, you know, that you've got a problem, they say, well, I'll pray for you. But they never actually do anything tangible for anybody on earth. There may be people that you feel like they're so heavenly minded that they don't do earthly good. But usually... It's because those people have a, long, a wrong view of, of heaven. Heaven is the spiritual realm where God is king. It's not this floaty place in the sky that you go to when you die. Heaven is the realm where God is king. The spiritual dimension of reality. A parallel universe. Filled with spiritual beings. Where Jesus is on the throne. Heaven is a realm of perfect love and beauty. And the more that you taste that realm, the more that that king gets a grip on your heart, King Jesus, the more heavenly minded you will be and the more you'll want to pray. Make it like that on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The more your heart is set on heaven, the more you will love like heaven on earth. And how did heaven love on earth? God so loved the world that he sent his son he gave. So the more heavenly minded you are, the more like Jesus you will be. A 
heart filled with the hope of heaven will be willing to love others and be bold to take risks for heaven's cause on earth. Heavenly hope fuels earthly love. And now I want to look at the second half of verse 5 up through verses 6 to 8. Of this hope, Paul's referring to, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So here... We see that the hope that motivates love, the hope of heaven, it's found in the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And Paul tells the Colossians four things about the gospel in these verses. He says that the hope is found in the word of truth, the gospel. And so any gospel, any gospel that doesn't mention the hope, the hope of heaven, the hope of resurrection... The hope of life forever in the presence of God. Any gospel that doesn't mention that is an incomplete gospel. Heaven is the goal of the gospel. Jesus died to bring you to God. To reconcile you with your creator. That's what the goodness in the good news is. Is that you can have a relationship with your creator once more. And so those who truly grasp the gospel as good news will have that hope. The hope of eternity with our creator, with the one who made us. And then Paul says that the gospel, another thing he says about the gospel, is that it's bearing fruit all over the world. It's not just bearing fruit or having an impact on the Colossian church. No, all over the ancient world, the good news about Jesus was being fruitful and multiplying. These are the exact Two words that Paul says to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when he says to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Well, now the gospel is doing that through the new humanity. Through Jesus and Jesus' people. The gospel is being fruitful and multiplying and bearing fruit. And what is the fruit? Well, it's summarized in these verses by love for believers but Paul gives a complete list in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit that the gospel bears in the new humanity, the new creation, those who trust Jesus, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And where the Spirit is at work, these things are growing and filling the earth. Paul also says that the gospel is the true word about grace. So what is the content of the gospel? Well, one way you could say it is it's the gospel of grace. The word about God's grace. God's grace is God's steadfast, loving kindness towards humans, regardless of what they have done. And it comes through Christ. The hope of heaven is the hope of grace in the future. God's kindness to us in the future. At the very heart of what the good news of the gospel about Jesus is, is grace. 
And if as a Christian you don't understand grace, really get it, then you won't have the hope of the gospel of grace. The gospel is the grace of the good news about God's grace that you cannot work for and you cannot earn. One practical application of this, the more that you grow in your understanding of the grace of God towards you, the love of God that you did not deserve, but that you enjoy through Jesus, the more gracious of a person you will become to others who hurt you and don't deserve your love. You will be like your Father in heaven who causes his Son to shine on the just and the unjust in the hope that they too would be transformed by the same grace that has touched your life. People who have drunk deeply at the well of grace become springs of grace for others. Go deep in the grace of the gospel. Finally, Paul concludes by reminding believers that Epaphras taught them the gospel of the true grace of God. And Epaphras had told them about the love of God at work in their lives. And now, let's just conclude our time together with just a brief summary of what we've seen, the main idea, and then some specific applications for us. Here's the main idea. Paul gives thanks for the gospel fruit of faith and love in the Colossians. He gives thanks. Like, what does a tree do? An apple tree. We got one in our yard. I'm hoping it bears fruit. Hopefully this frost doesn't nab it. It's pretty early. Okay? When the true tree or seed of the gospel is planted in your life, if it's really the gospel, it will bear the fruit of the gospel. And what is that fruit? Trust in Jesus and love for Jesus and for other people. That's the main point. Paul is giving thanks because he sees that happening. And everything else unpacks why they love each other. They love because of the hope. And it unpacks the good news. So now three applications. First, the grace of the good news is true. Look at verse 5. Paul calls the gospel the word of truth. It is a message or a word that can be summed up with the word of truth. The good news is truth. So just what I want what I want to land on you this morning is that the grace of God is not too good to be true. Some people hear about it and they say, ah, everything in me says, if you want people to like you, you have to be likable. If you want to get paid, then you have to work. If you want to be worthy of whatever you're called, then you have to earn it. The gospel doesn't work that way. The gospel, the grace of God is that God shows his grace on sinners. While they were still his enemies, Jesus died for his, for his enemies. God is a father of grace, and it is not too good to be true. 
You, the grace of God is the truth. You don't have to live your whole life trying to be good enough to be accepted by God. You can never be good enough to erase your sin or your faults. All you have to do is humbly receive his grace as a gift. Through Jesus Christ who paid for your sin. A perfect life, Jesus' life, was given for you. A perfect human, so that through him you might have access to God and be received by the Father of grace with open arms. And it's true. And if you receive the true grace of God, then you will have hope. Confident hope that your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and that one day, God will not cast you out because of your sin out of the new creation, but you will be transformed, never to sin again. And the new realm that he creates will be a perfect home. This hope is the second thing we have to close on. What we hope for tomorrow changes how we live today. What you hope for tomorrow changes how you live today. Humans cannot go living long without hope. Hope gives us a reason to live. Motivation, drive to keep going on. I mean, just a simple, practical thing. As a deer hunter, why do I hike four miles into the mountains in the dark to get to a tree in the dark and climb the tree to sit there all day? Good question. <laughs> Good question. Because I got a 10-point buck five years old on camera, and I have a hope of seeing him, right? And that picture is a hope. Now, that's a silly illustration. But listen, if I did not have that deer on camera, I would not do that. I would have no hope that sitting in the woods in this spot, <laughs> why not sit in my front yard, you know? You just are in the house, right? So hope changes how we live. It motivates us. It drives us. Motivation to keep it going. Without hope, we despair and give up. Hope is the expectation that tomorrow might, just might be better than today. And yet, here's the problem with all other earthly hopes, except the hope of the gospel. What if tomorrow is not going to be better? From an earthly standpoint, we have no reason to expect that tomorrow might be better than today. In fact, tomorrow might be a lot worse than today. For any one of us sitting here. From an earthly standpoint, if you take heaven completely out of the equation, every single one of you is going to have a hopeless day in this life. Your deathbed. Where it's it. There's no more hope. The doctors can't make you immortal. You will die. All other hopes, all earthly hopes, can be taken away. But if we have believed and trusted in the true gospel of the true grace of God, we know the future will be better. And not just when Jesus comes back, either. 
Like, yeah, yeah, I know my hope is in heaven, but tomorrow really is rough. Today is rough. Is there hope for today? Jesus gives us hope for even tomorrow. Because the weaker I am tomorrow, the more needy I am, the more God's grace has an opportunity to fill me with strength. The more empty you are, the greater the opportunity to be filled with the love and the strength of God. He gives more grace. There is an endless supply of kindness and love and strength and forgiveness in the arms of our Savior. And the more I am spent today, the more I'm going to need him tomorrow. So spend yourself because there's always hope. Hope of being filled tomorrow and for eternity by the God who will meet your need. And then you may be wondering, I don't feel hope. How do I get this hope? How do you fan hope into flame? The only way to fan hope in future grace as a Christian is to look at past grace through Jesus Christ. Grace shown you first at the cross. Remember Jesus' perfect life. God became man for you. Remember his sacrificial death on the cross. Remember his resurrection from the dead. Triumphing over death for you. Brutalized on a cross for you. If you're struggling to hope for the future and future grace, look at past grace. Hope rises when we look to Jesus when we look outside of ourselves to the one who is the God of hope. And as you look to Jesus, think about the trustworthiness of Jesus. He never breaks his word. His promises are true. His word is true. He's faithful. He's always faithful. And your faith will rise as you dwell on his faithfulness. And as your faith, as your trust in him rises, so will your hope in his promises. Look to Jesus friends. And if today you find it in your heart to look again to Jesus and be captured by amazement at him, and if you find that your heart is filling with hope, know that that is the mighty work of God at work in your life. The same work that turned the Apostle Paul around into a follower of Jesus is at work in your heart to give you hope. And so I'm going to close with this prayer from the Apostle Paul. He says this, he says, and I'm praying this over you, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Father, I pray that each one here would know the hope of the gospel. I pray that if anyone here does not know the hope that comes from the true gospel of the grace of God, that they would not leave here today without coming to understand and receive your grace through Jesus. I pray that you fill us with hope. 
In Jesus' name, amen.